0: Welcome, folks. Uh, today, we're, our interview is with uh, R.J. Horsley, president of Spot On Transact. Uh, welcome to the podcast, R.J.
1: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a treat.
0: Oh, great. Well, it's a treat for us as well. So I was wondering, you know, just we always like to ask people to sort of uh, give us some background. So I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, give us a little thumbnail sketch of uh, of your of your uh, work history in terms of how you got into merchant services and why you founded uh, Spot On.
1: Um, so... Taking a step back, the the founders of our company are these twin brothers Zach and Matt Hyman. They're two of my best friends, uh-huh. and they've been in merchant services forever. They they started a company card called Card Payment Solutions,
0: right? Back I remember. In, I don't
1: know two thousand one, which they sold to iPayment,
0: mm-hmm. in
1: two thousand three, right. and then started a company called Central Payments,
0: right? And I remember T-Pay,
1: that too. Yeah, so based up in San Rafael, ultimately right. sold that to Tesis. Ran that for, I guess, 13 years, 12, 13 years. Uh-huh. Um, had 100,000 merchants, 1,500 sales partners. Like, really, really, really impressive business. Yeah. And for myself, my roots, I started in investment banking for fintech. So
0: uh-huh.
1: got to work with a bunch of, with Central Payment, with what was Merchant Warehouse at the time, right. uh, now Cayenne, with Transverse, with SumUp, et cetera. So, Got my roots in, in the merchant services world and then was the CFO of a, a payments and software company actually based out of Britain for three years or a little over three years. Um, but just kept, kept coming back to this and, and my relationship with Zach and Matt. And we were sitting there saying, God, wouldn't it be awesome if we could build our dream company? And uh, spot on ended up being that. So that's kind of how the, the two worlds collided, if you will.
0: Nice. Oh, very nice. Very nice. So, listen, you know, when I was when I was doing some, you know, background research on Spot On, uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is uh, that you offer something called the Preferred Payment Processing Rate Program. Can you explain this and yeah. what it's about and, 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 you know, is it just a pricing thing or does it go deeper than that?
1: Yeah, it's a simplicity thing. So, okay. especially for folks that, that know the industry, uh, Um. If you're, you're talking to a business owner, the conversation is going to go one of two ways. And it's either a, what are you paying right now? Great. Let me do an analysis and figure out savings for you. Or they'll just sit there and say, what's your rate? Right. And sure, uh, we want to be able to have an answer to the, what's your rate? And a, a simple way, something that we think is fair, something we think is incredibly straightforward. Um, and for someone who doesn't want to go through the hullabaloo, if you will, of, of going through an analysis and what rates have they negotiated before. Um, maybe they're with, with Square now or on tiered pricing or whatever. It's just a very simple, straightforward way for them to know what they're paying. So there's two buckets. There's um, first bucket is 1.89% and 15 cents. That's for all of your normal transactions, right? Visa, MasterCard, Discover. Um, then... Yeah, and including rewards cards, which normally don't get bucketed into that. And then there's two nine nine dollars and $0.15 cents for your traditional non-qual transactions. So your Amex, your, your keyed-in transactions, online right. transactions, et cetera. And again, trying to keep those buckets super simple um, just to avoid complexity and have it be a fair deal where someone doesn't come back two months from now and say, well, why am I paying so much money? This wasn't a square deal. We want to get them up front with really aggressive, fair pricing. As part of our model, is to have people be with us forever. So, let's not play games with them. Let's just be transparent and upfront at the outset.
2: You know, it's really that's Does that really- makes sense. Yeah, it's really really interesting. One thing I'm just curious your thoughts on this. I actually talked about in a video maybe six months ago that I, I thought there was a big opportunity because our industry for so long, you know, tier pricing was like, you know, a really, really big thing. And then it seemed like there was this big shift to Interchange Plus, which, you know, the whole pitch was transparency, but at the cost of simplicity, and now there's all these merchants on interchange plus pricing that look at these statements with, you know, so much variation month to month and so much complexity and, you know, that, that opportunity, I mean, are you seeing that? Where is it a lot of merchants that are on these, you know, quote unquote transparent, you know, supposedly transparent interchange plus statements that are really complicated that like this concept of like something easier to understand?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. There's a number of reasons. So a, the simplicity that you talked about, B um, Interchange Plus, I think, became popular because it was conceptually transparent.
2: Right, right. Uh, not, not actually. <laughs> it
1: hasn't stopped people. Yeah, exactly. It hasn't stopped people from playing games. Probably isn't a fair phrase, but maybe playing games.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, I agree with
1: that. That's a good statement. Um, <laughs> it, it, and so, I think at least feedback we've gotten on, the, on, on this pricing plan is it's stupid simple right in, in in very much what you see is what you get right um and that just it really is who we are as a company more generally uh, trying to be transparent and straightforward and thinking about the, the business owner more generally and so um look there's plenty of, of of business owners who are on interchange plus right now who want to stick on interchange plus because a it's what they know and b right. they'll know exactly what they're saving compared to today. sure uh, but many are Focus just on simplicity and transparency. Right. And our pit doesn't work if we have incredibly aggressive or incredibly unfair rates. The only way the simplicity and transparency works is if we're being fair at the outset. Right. So. Mm -hmm. um, Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, No, very
0: very logical. So tell me, I mean, I can't help but ask this. I mean, you know, it's it's the hot button issue these days. Uh, How does cash discounting fit into this or does it?
1: Yeah. Um, look, there's a, there, uh, it's exactly what you said. It's a hot topic and there's a lot of mixed opinions on it. I, my personal opinion um, is that it makes sense for some businesses and it doesn't make sense for others. And right. it really comes down to um, the business owner's inclination. Look, doing cash discount on a, a average ticket of twenty five hundred dollars. You, me and presumably everybody else isn't gonna pay or we're not gonna pay a hundred dollar convenience fee if you will,
0: right, right? just
1: like that, that that doesn't pass the single test right. Um, but for the convenience store where the average ticket's six bucks, am I willing to pay an extra 16 cents or 24 cents or whatever it is? Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. And if that helps the business owner cover their processing costs, which is a percentage on a percentage basis on a low ticket, as you guys know, right. can be a fair amount, then I think that's a square deal. I, I, I think the the most important piece is um, not forcing it onto businesses.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Again, it goes back. It goes back to the of, of solution selling.
0: Right, but it makes
1: an, yeah, it's, it's, it's a an logical option, option right? Yeah, but in, and I also think if you're doing this right, you've got to lay out the risks too. Mm-hmm. You could rub customers the wrong way. Right. And um, it's probably easier. To raise your prices by 4% rather than do cash discounts.
2: Well, that's, I mean right? I would, like I, would I would I would argue I would argue that point a little for bit.
1: 49.
2: I mean I would argue that point a little bit obviously no? for for a retail store that's got a thousand SKUs, no, it's not easier, you know. They've got to go through it and change yeah, all their that's, prices, that's, right? So it, it depends on the like you said originally, yeah. it just depends on the business. Some it's a good fit, some it's not, you know. Yeah, yeah so
1: and and how i think in 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 my opinion is i really just think it comes down to how it's presented if you're talking to a business owner you've got to talk to them about their business and their options and the the benefits and risks of the various different things they can do um cash discounting just being one of the uh, the things that they can do but i I don't like the concept of forcing it onto people sure um because i think at one point you might rub consumers the wrong way and if you rub consumers the wrong way you're ultimately hurting that business
0: sure so, sure
1: well well you know this transparency.
0: This is a good segue uh, then to my to my next question rj you know um you know in this business for for years as long as i can remember everybody's competed on rates right and now there seems yep. to be a consensus that you know that that's just a, a race to the bottom um so one of the things I, I, I find intriguing about SpotOn On is that you've uh, sort of shed that payments company moniker, shall we say, um, that most ISOs and acquirers don and, and put yourselves out there as a business services company uh, as opposed to a payments company. So can you explain that right. strategy and why you believe it helps – spot-on differentiate itself yeah, from others?
1: For, for sure. And bear with me as I might ramble a little bit, because this is probably what I'm most passionate about. So <laughs> um, so, so that concept you just described is effectively the reason why we started this business. Zach and Matt in particular, they've been in this forever. Right. They've dealt with hundreds of thousands of clients, thousands of sales partners. Um, the industry has been begging for product for a really long time. Because if you've got hundreds of ISOs out there just competing on rates, A, that story gets old at one point, mm-hmm. and B, like you said, it's a race to the bottom. And so both for the business owner but also for the sales partner, you've got to offer something new. Right. Like if all you're pitching is bips and cents all day long, that job gets tiring. Oh, yeah. And you get enough merchants kicking your butt out the door, that, gets, that starts to suck at one point. <laughs> and so how do you um, – What more can you do and what more can you offer? And the only way, in my opinion, it's actually effective is if it's true to who you are. It's not solutions that you're reselling from somebody else that, like, it's an add-on and maybe another way to make more money. It's got to be core to the business. Mm -hmm. So from our perspective, we looked at it and said, okay, if we're talking to a small business owner, our goal is to actually help that business. Just like we were talking about on rates and the solution selling. Let's right. build solutions that can help that business. And not every one of our solutions makes sense for every single business, but we want to arm the sales partner with the ability to walk into that business, talk to them about their business, and then have multiple different ways they can help them. So mm-hmm. product, in, in my mind, payments in many ways is just a feature. Payments is one of the ways we can help somebody else. Right. But we can help them with digital marketing, reviews, helping them build a website, a loyalty program, so on and so forth. So do you see, do you see
0: that as just, just as, I'm sorry, but I just want to, I'm wondering, do you see that as the entree then as opposed to, you know, uh, when a, when an agent goes into a merchant um, that it's, you know, better to sell those products as opposed to selling just payment services or does it get sold as a package? Is that the better approach?
1: I think it, I think it's probably a package, but what I'd encourage you to do is, if you talk to sales partners, um, this is what's exciting for them. Mm-hmm. Especially people who've had experience in the industry, like we were talking about, they've been selling rates forever. Right. To be able to go and talk to a merchant, a business owner, about something new, mm-hmm. and to actually be able to help their business, not just the look. I know somebody else walked in and said they can save you twenty-seven dollars. I'll save you thirty-two. Right. Like that. Not, not that to not have conversation, but to be able to have the conversation of here's all of the ways by working with me, I can help you. That's mm-hmm. so different than all of the conversations that have been happening. And that if this guy is experiencing in the industry, he's been having, um, it's, it, it, candidly, it's candidly fulfilling and inspiring because you, you are, you're actually helping the business owner. The conversation with them is about running and growing their business. It isn't about saving a nickel or dime here or there. So I think long story short, it's part of the package. Um, and what piece of the package matters most to that business owner depends on the business.
2: Okay, sure. One thing I'm kind of curious about, you know, and I've actually had the opportunity to talk to probably, I don't know, 25 or 30 spot-on agents that, you know, through my videos and stuff, just randomly reach out, and it seems like the trend, and one thing I really respect about what you guys are doing is that, you know, it really does seem like it's 60-40 in my experience talking to spot-on agents. Meaning, 60% of the people they sell, it's actually based on the technology side versus like only 40% maybe on price. Whereas most ISOs, it's like they're they they say they're all about the technology, but when I talk to their agents, it's really like 90-10. You know, 90% price, 10% technology. So I'm just kind of curious. Number one, has that been kind of your overall experience? And also, how you know, what would you say are some of the keys that you have put in place that have enabled your agents to actually? Focus focus on talking about the technology, you know, when they're with the merchant, which the merchants program to talk about price with, you know, agents in our industry.
1: For sure. So I think you, you captured it perfectly as the industry is generally 90, 10 and whether we're 60, 40 or 80, 20, whatever it may be, I think product is is the key to what we're doing. I'd point to a few things. First, it, it, it is core to who we are as a company. We have 50 developers, building our own software so our software Mm. products like i said earlier they're not off the shelf that we took from somebody else white labeling or reselling or whatever we built built them all sure and um we have a w2 sales force and so every field sales employee is just as much a part of the company as i am or anybody that's sitting in the corporate office we're Mm -hmm. sharing all of our product updates constantly and so it's not just a a sales brochure saying hey here's the next cool thing you can go sell As we improve our products, as we release updates, our sales team is just as much in the loop in that as our product team is or as our support team is. And so I don't know the best way of saying it, but it's almost ingrained in our team from the outset. So So when they're talking to to clients and when we go in through training, again, it's a solution sell. It's talking to them about, okay, here are the parts of what I can offer you to help your business. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Perfect sense. So so but 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 you know, I kinda wanted to to go back for a minute because you did talk about having all these developers on staff and um, you know, there yeah. It's been an ongoing debate in all areas of, of technology and and particularly financial technology, that whole uh you know, question of build, build versus buy, you know? So what is it that you think building, what do you think the, the advantages there to Doing this in-house as opposed to going out and you know buying an off-the-shelf or, or or you know uh, licensing something that somebody else has developed.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a fascinating question. So I'd actually put those in three buckets if you're including the licensing one in there. Okay. The licensing one is something that um, is probably a feature or capability that you need that you're never going to be able or harder than heck to develop. Right. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we probably will never build payroll software or potentially accounting software. Okay, I can see that. Because there's so much regulation around that. Sure. Around that. So we, we've partnered, for example, with Gusto. Gusto, we think, is a best-in-class HR provider. Um, if they're going to do it 17 times better than we ever would, let's partner with them. Mm-hmm. Right. But on things that, that we think are core to what we're doing, then it then it switches to that buy versus build conversation you've been having, and I think our inclination is build because you get to start at the beginning, you get to incorporate customer feedback, you get to build not just a feature, but you're building it into the platform itself so it becomes scalable and you can take it into different verticals. So for example, we built appointment software, the um, kind of sim- think about similar to Vigaro if you're familiar with them. Sure. It is a no-brainer for the salon industry, hair, uh, barbers, nail salons, et cetera. But we can take the vast majority of that architecture mm-hmm. and apply it to auto repair. <laughs> and you wouldn't ever think that something that works for a salon works for an auto repair shop. But if you think about those both those businesses, someone is scheduling an appointment on, online to come in and have a service. And because we built that software, And built that capability, we can do it in a way that's scalable across verticals. So I think our inclination is to build. So it is. There's a handful, and so far there's two. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just wondering because one thing that strikes me is that building takes time, right? So does it impact your, your, your speed to market?
1: Right. But we're. So, yes. Um, but because product is so core to who we are, and because it's such a a, a leading part of our sales proposition, we want to make sure we have the right product. So we're not mm-hmm. going to buy something just for the sake of now having that feature. Yeah, I see what well, you're saying. Well, two companies in the past.
2: Year. Yeah, and I really Go think ahead. too. I mean, as as a developer and somebody that has developers on with my company as well, I you know, which we we build our own stuff as well. And I think too. You know, to your point, it's like you have to really answer the fundamental question Are you a payments company that has technology or are you a technology company that has payments? Right. And it sounds to me like what you guys are trying to do is create something different, which is, you know, our whole culture and our whole presentation, which is why your, you know, agents are successfully doing this, is that, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Spot On is a technology company that offers payments, right?
1: Yeah. And I think it's probably maybe right in the middle of that is the, we are, for to pick the sales partner, we're here to help you with your business. Right. For some businesses, payments might be 90% of the proposition because they're a mortuary.
0: Right, and right. All of our. <laughs> they don't need there. appointments.
1: It. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, with those types of businesses, sure. we can definitely help them. I and mean, we think that the way we do business is incredibly valuable. Sure. And for some businesses, payments is the afterthought oh, my goodness, we can change how they do business more generally. We're going to help them grow it. And so they put 90% of the value on the software. And so that I think it just depends on the business type.
2: Okay. Yeah. Sure. Is that yeah, fair? Awesome. awesome. Let me, let me ask one more follow-up question. So, so Go ahead. Going
1: back, going, going back to that buy versus build thing, the, the piece I want to weave in there, if you guys are cool with it, is sure. um, over the past year we've bought two companies. And, um, again, I think our inclination is to, is to build, but these, these two companies were built so well and have such phenomenal product that we think is incredibly valuable and would take years to create ourselves that we pulled the trigger. So we right. bought a company called Imagine POS, based out of Detroit, um, one of the most res- most impressive restaurant point-of-sale companies I've ever seen from a technology perspective. Clients are obsessed with it, phenomenal for single location, but also for multi-location, chains, franchises, etc. cetera Um, and opens up a whole new world to us. And then we bought a company called Life.io. And think of Life.io as a a DIY, do-it-yourself website creation and design company. Mm. So you think about that salesperson again. She's able to walk into a business, Google it three seconds before, check out their website. Do they have one? Is it good? And as she's talking to them about how she can work with them to help them grow and run their business, by the way, I can create a website for you. It will look just like this. Because she can pull up a demo right away. Uh-huh. And if it's someone that would use our appointment software, or online ordering, all of a sudden you're weaving all of these solutions in together. It's a pretty darn compelling proposition. Sure. So those two um, companies, we believed in enough the, how they had built their product and how impressive their product was and candidly their team that we had to pull the trigger. We wanted to arm our team with those, the, those capabilities. So,
2: yeah, I think that's great. Um, so I have one other follow-up question. that, that This is uh, you know kind of switching gears a little bit, um, but I was excited. I actually didn't even know uh, – you know, I was talking to Patty today. I was like, oh, I just now saw your name on the list here of interviewees. And so I was really excited about the interview because, again, I have just had an opportunity to talk to a lot of agents. You guys are doing a lot of recruiting. So one thing I admire is – It seems to me that you guys have brought a lot of agents into our industry from other industries, I would imagine, because you want to kind of start from scratch with helping them to, uh, you know, understand your unique uh, sales proposition. Um, My question is, though, how do you deal with kind of the issue of, like, you get these new agents in, you train them, you get them going – Um, Then as they become more familiar with the industry or you're trying to bring a veteran agent in, obviously compensation, you you have more pressure to provide higher compensation. There's more competition for that agent. So not talking about the merchant, but the agent, what do you guys do to keep your sales partners on the team and and producing long-term?
1: We start aggressive and we start fair. And um, I think a couple of differentiators. First is we're hiring W2 employees. Right. So it's not the 1099 model. Go work for four different people.
2: Right. Um, Right. Right. It's exclusive.
1: To believe our team to believe in what we're doing just as much as the next guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, what we say bleed blue. Um, so I think the W two model is differentiated in and of its own right. We're able to offer health benefits. Um, people are able to carry themselves as spot on employees. Mm -hmm. I think the second part would be, like you said, with comp. Um, we're not starting low knowing that we're going to have to retrade every three months and get higher. Right. Let's, we, we know the job is hard. We've been in the industry forever. And so if you're successful at this, it only works if you have the opportunity to make a ton of money. Right. And if you're successful at this, you're going to take care of your clients. This is going to be a valuable proposition for everybody. And so I guess that's a long winded way of saying at the outset, just like with the transparent pricing thing we talked about a half hour ago, we're trying to be be fair and aggressive at the outset, rather than wait nine months from now for hmm. you to prove that you're good. Um, and so we're trying to put together a a, a compensation package that incents and rewards people for the various different things they do. Sure. Not just paying people on the the bonuses for the payments piece, but also for selling software and also for selling point of sale solutions. Right. Um, and we're looking we're looking for life. And yep. so, it, again, it's, it just goes back to that W-2 model and how we do comp and mm-hmm. how we do sales management and training. We're not looking for somebody to do this for four months, then go write business somewhere else for four months, then come back to us right. for three months and whatever. Right. I hope this is the last job for a lot of people. Right. I hope people are with us for the next 10 years and 15 years and can build careers and families and the like. And so um, we've set it up that way from the outset.
2: Hmm. Very
0: interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. very interesting. So, okay, well, then uh, so we have a lot of uh, agents out outside listening to us, um, what should they do if they're interested in uh, learning more about uh, spot on and, and perhaps be, you know, joining the team?
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, they can email careers at spot They can obviously go to the spoton.com website. We mm-hmm. also have a website, teamspoton.com, which is just for sales partners. Okay. Um, you can apply through there. You can learn more through there. Uh, and I, for that matter, all to email me, RJ at spoton.com. Happy to have a conversation with anybody. We're looking to build the team. Uh, like I said, we're looking to build lifers who have strong values, who believe in what we're doing, um, and who we'd be proud to have representing us. So. Well, that's great, um, RJ. We're I... always looking to build.
0: This, this has really been um, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. And I've really uh, learned some, always learned something from these. Yeah,
2: definitely. Thanks, RJ, very much for your time, man. Really appreciate it. <laughs> it was great. Yeah, have well, a great day. A,
1: yeah, this is a total tick. Thank you guys for your time. Thanks for hey. having me on.
2: This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983 always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere.
0: You know, I don't uh, make a whole lot of procrast- procrast- prognostications. Sorry about that. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes uh, the writing on the walls is just too bold to ignore. And this is how I um, something I think about e-commerce right now. Okay. Uh, the U.S. Census Bureau, which keeps tabs on such things, right, is reporting that non-store retail so- store sales, which of course are dominated by e-commerce, right, surpassed sales at general merchandise stores. You know, department stores, warehouse clubs, and the like. Wow! For the first time in February. Wow! Isn't that I? Th- I found that very compelling. Well, I can tell you that in
2: February, uh, my you
0: went shopping, right?
2: (laughs) My e-commerce revenue uh, was 100 percent of my total spend. Really, I don't. I don't go to stores anymore. I I very rarely. I did last night. It's funny. I spent a bunch of money uh, yesterday because I went to Boxcoves because it was my wife's birthday. Wife's birthday, right? So I want to take the kids give them the experience of like shopping for mommy. Right. That is the only time I've gone to the store to buy anything. (laughs) Oh, believe me,
0: I'm I'm with you. It's like, in fact, the UPS lady. It's 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 a trip because I have a an apartment a building with an apartment right. behind my house right and ev- just about every day UPS is delivering something to them or to right. me right right <laughs> it's know? amazing it's really amazing. amazing so yeah so according to, to to the Census Bureau non-store retail sales were fifty nine point seventy seven billion wow in February Ooh. and which just barely eclipsed general merchandise stores which rang up fifty nine point seven bill. Hmm. Um, and uh, significantly um, beat out supermarkets, which tallied $55.7 billion in sales. Wow. Which is, you know, that's that to me says a lot the supermarket things because yeah. even though I don't like to go to stores either, right. I do end up having to go to the
2: supermarket. Well, of course, and you know, you my, know? my wife goes to the store and right. Yeah, you know, we have somebody that does most of our shopping and you know, like so we yeah. You know, it's not like our household income. A lot of, I'm sure our household income is probably about fifty fifty right in store versus online still. Sure, sure. Just me personally, I don't. But like you know, but but yeah,
0: <laughs> for me personally, it's like the only thing I you know I go to the grocery store for bread, eggs, right. you know, things like sure.
2: that. Have to, they haven't solved the grocery thing. Yet. Nope. And there's also specialty stuff like you know, last fall I went and got my new golf clubs. Well, I right. didn't get those online. I wanted to go get fitted. You know, right? There's right. still definitely a lot of things where you got, you have to do it, you know, in person. I think. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I it's funny because on my way here today, I passed a couple of what do they call it? Uh, uh, tractor supply company. Right. Yeah, okay.
2: And, and I live in I live in a rural area, so I love sure. going in there, you of know, course. and it's
0: like, oh, yeah, I could use a new rake or I could use, right. you know. And see,
2: people who aren't from your area or my area in Pennsylvania may not understand, Tractor Supply Store is like the hillbilly version of Walmart. They it have, is. They have everything.
0: They have everything. <laughs>
2: and it is so cool. I just get lost in there. They have, th- they have things that Walmart would never carry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to explain. If you haven't ever been to a Tractor Supply Store, you know, find one. It's yeah. A, it's it's a, an it's a fun
0: experience. It's, you know, and, and it is funny when. I drive up here. I pass so
2: many of them. Oh like, yeah! Oh yeah! That's cool. Let's yes. go check that we, out. We, we live in the land of tractor supply stores. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> so anyway, so here's some some additional news. Um, uh, well, actually, I guess I should should start with you know some some news outlets did mistakenly report uh, after the Census Bureau um, uh, put out these data this data that non store sales exceeded all brick and mortar store sales. That's going to be a long time coming. Right. You know, uh, because you put total retail and food sales, uh, service sales in February were $506 billion. So right. that made those e-commerce sales maybe about 12% by my math.
2: Right, because, you know, of course you're talking about, you know, restaurants, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But I, you and convenience stores. I will tell you, you know, a good example, the restaurant thing, though, uh, in our area we just got uh, DoorDash. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, we did. And uh, we were trying to do Uber Eats, but our house, we live in the country, and we're right. kind of just outside the range. Yeah, I'm outside of that range, too. So we have DoorDash. And um, I mean, in the last, uh, I don't know, we got it maybe three weeks ago. Uh-huh. And I would say since then, probably 25% of our eat-out money has been spent Husband on DoorDash. Dash. DoorDash, interesting. You know? yeah. yeah, Which guy used to go pick up, or, or we'd, have, we'd just what go but there. But you, know? you the aggravation of happening. Oh, to, my. You know, go pick it up, right? But it just proves, too, and I, and I think there's a lot of trends that kind of culminate, you know, things like you look at even uh driving automation. Well why does DoorDash cost so much? because well, it's got to pay the driver. Right. Well, in right. well once we have years, those they cars,
0: are. right? Yeah. Self driving cars. Yeah. Although, you know, the other thing that that makes that cracks me up is the uh, the notion of drone delivery. Did you see it in um, uh, Amazon actually has it live in uh, the UK right now. Yeah. I saw a demo of it. Yeah. And and it just it just cracked me up because I love it. it's like you know, I live in the country, right? Right. And I see these drones <laughs> crashing into the trees. You know? Right. Right. It's like, how do they? You know, how? Yeah. Do well, they
2: the new ones, uh, the new ones from DJI uh, are actually uh, pretty amazing with the sensors they have. Um, I was just talking to a friend of mine about some of the new ones they came out with, but the sensors they have, I mean, you can just say. We want you to go here, and it will find the route there, avoid all the trees, buildings, really, interesting, touch down, and then come back. You know, it's uh, and then it so touches
0: down, right? Is that as as I understand it? it Touches down, and then once it lays down the package or whatever, right? Then it just you know, th- this takes is the problem. The, the
2: problem with the drone delivery stuff is just where does it land and drop the stuff right, off? Right. So the way they were doing it in uh, with Amazon was like, okay, if you want to have this capability, you have to put this little like launch pad out in your backyard, and it has like a beacon. Okay. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. So yeah that's I
0: saw the beacon on the demo, yeah. right? and that's what kind of yeah. Because it's like I can't have that come they to can't, my front like, door. Right. It's not going
2: to fly to your front door, and it, you know they have they have certain restrictions now in the U.S. Amazon can't even try it because the laws in the U.S. right now are still way too restrictive.
0: And all the uh, yeah the air Airspace stuff and everything. Yeah, and even that
2: now, like DJI's latest software update, um, if you try to fly a a DJI, which is like the most popular company, Uh if you try to fly your drone into a restricted airspace, it literally just stops.
0: Well, that's kind of funny because where I live is I'm just on the other side of the mountain from Camp David. Okay. So sure, I'm in restricted sure. airspace. You know, I never, Yeah. like, unlike other people, I never hear airplanes except if the president or the vice president R- are up Air there coming, right? Yeah. And then they have those F 16s that right. circle around. So That's I got a feeling I'm not going to get any drone delivery no, not up anytime ready. soon. Nah, not anytime soon. Anyway, so, you know, e commerce, I just wanted to continue with this. You know, it clearly is growing at a rapid clip. Of course. And against this backdrop, we're also seeing what I would say are significant closures of uh, brick-and-mortar stores, uh, which is a trend. I just came upon this this term. Uh, analysts are referring to as the retail apocalypse. Right. Um, which I think is a little drastic, a yeah. little draconian, but you know. Uh, but it, I thought this statistic was interesting. Retailers are planning to close more than six thousand physical stores this year, according to uh, Business Insider. Some of the biggest of these, of course, Payless Shoe Source, which right. is uh, in bankruptcy, so it's shuttering 2,500 stores. Jimboree Group, which is closing 800 children's clothing outlets, mm-hmm. which I can see again, like you, we were discussing. You guys have
2: a have a you know, yep. have, I have a seven month old, right? I mean, is Christina going to go out to the store to get clothes for her? No, and and it's it is really interesting because you know it's one of those things where I think every business has to be thinking about you know. Everybody wants – whatever it is you're selling doesn't matter what it is. If somebody can come up with a way for someone to buy this online, they're going to. They're going to. And so when it comes to baby clothes, I mean, you know, it, they need to be six to nine months or they need to be – what? like the right. range is pretty – you know, it's more about, oh, that's a cute saying on that onesie. Right. And so, you know, you can get stuff online. No problem for that. Now, if my daughter, Alana, who is eight – now for her, yeah, we started to do a little bit of online shopping, but you still like to go to the store and, and try on the clothes, exactly. And, you know?
0: Especially for a little girl, you know, right? right. And she like, wants to look pretty. She wants to look yeah. pretty. She wants to pick it out. <laughs> right. And what's you know what you see online isn't necessarily. Right. But I can imagine if Christina takes her to the store, she's like, "Ooh, look at this, right. mommy! Can I have this?" Right? right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, a couple of the other um, closures that I sh- found sh- interesting: Family Dollar. Which of course is consolidating with, I believe, its family Dollar Tree, Dollar Tree and dollar Family t- Dollar, right? right? Right. So they're shuttering like uh, 350 Family Dollar stores. Right. Which doesn't, I mean, frankly, I think, fam, uh, Dollar Tree is a nicer place. Yeah, but it is. Sure. Um, the Gap.
2: Really? Yeah, 230 stores. Wow. But see, again, I think it's like these are businesses that have done a great job of going online. Yeah. So they don't need as many locations. They don't need as
0: many locations, exactly. Yeah. Uh, The one that probably would be hard, and it kind of goes with your golf clubs, is performance bicycles. Yeah. Because who's going to buy a bike?
2: I mean— yeah. I did
0: buy an electric bike online one time and I, right. it was such a pain in the butt to put it together. But see once I'll tell can. you,
2: you know, to kind of it's interesting actually. You know, another another thing you got to think about is if you had that performance bike store. Well, the thing is though, there's a lot of revenue involved with performance Those bikes and that's not services, Yeah, that's not purchasing right. bikes. Right. So my thing with your that saddlebags and so forth. Right. But to me the idea is all that stuff you could pretty much get online. Right. Whereas it's like purchasing the bike is the big thing. If you're gonna buy a two thousand dollar bike, you're willing to drive a couple hours. Sure. And right? have and have it fitted to you, right. Yeah. So you don't need sure. that many physical stores. Right. The idea is yeah. come buy your bike. Then, here's our website where you can get tires and mm -hmm. replacement, whatever. You know what I mean? Right. No, I agree. I agree. Um,
0: Another notable trend. um, While consumers are spending more online, I thought this was interesting. They're less inclined to use their debit cards than their credit cards.
2: Hmm, That's interesting. Um, I guess the Visa MasterCard have done a good job promoting their reward points and everything.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also think, and this is is some data I got from Mercada. I do think, and, and I'm one of those people, I'm not as crazy about using my debit card in case it's going to get compromised. Sure. You know? So about only half of debit card holders uh, report using those cards for online purchases. Um, And like me, 41% of them said it was a perception of security and fraud controls that has them preferring credit cards. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And yeah, other reasons it's are— It's like I think the banks watch their money more than they watch your money. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's like <laughs> if it's a credit card, well, that's going to be on them. Right. And so they want to watch that fraud more carefully if it's your debit card. Well, that's it's the like money a... out of your account. You can file a chargeback if you want, but good luck. You yeah,
0: know? yeah, exactly. And, uh, and some related data points. Since 2013, the share of U.S. households using debit cards for purchases has dropped from 74% to 58% which I thought was interesting because I remember when I used to track these numbers the debit yeah. card and the credit yeah. card you know it was around 2004 when debit surpla- surpassed credit right
2: um and now it seems it to back be other yeah way. It's coming back you know, the it other way you could it could be another reason I don't know I mean in our in our household uh we actually use uh credit card for everything now too um the reason in our in our situation is credit score you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like what we sure. do is we, we – our bank account, all our bank account really is now is just the, the thing that we used to pay the cards down to zero every month. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Because we're trying to get the credit built up. And so I think, you know, if people are mindful of their credit score and things like that, I think credit cards just kind of make a little bit more sense in yeah. that context. Yeah.
0: No, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. Like, you know, one of my things, I've been paying down my credit cards – I. I had a little bit more debt than I wanted to. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I like about paying them down is like, okay, now that there's an emergency, right? I really you have, have your emergency fund. I have my yeah. yeah. So sure. So uh, here's my take on all this. You know, if you're selling merchant services today and you aren't pursuing e-commerce opportunities, either by helping existing merchants get online, or boarding new e-commerce merchants, you're missing out on some significant opportunities. You know, not just opportunities to grow your merchant base. But also to engender potentially more profitable relationships, you know, surcharging, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, as we've discussed in the past, surcharging and cash discounting are two offerings that address merchant point pain points on on cost. Yeah. Uh, you know, and cash discounting's gotten some blowback from Visa. Sure. And some of the, the acquirers, but not
2: surcharging. No, of course not. It's uh, that's well documented legal, you know. Right, you
0: know. and and but you know, and under card brand rules, surcharging can only apply to credit cards, of course. So it makes it less than ideal for uh, merchants to see a lot of debit card purchases, uh, like grocers, for example. Right. But if, as Mercator's data suggests, consumers are more inclined to use their credit cards and debit cards when shopping online, right? then I think the future... Well, right. I'll tell
2: you what, though. I mean, one of the other issues with e-commerce as far as surcharging is that it's not in all 50 states. That's it. And so that's a really big problem. That's a really big problem. Because you have to, you know, how do you monitor that? I, you know, and I'll tell you one of the other things, too. I think one of the larger opportunities that we didn't really discuss, but it's like, you know, when is somebody going to come along with an a software company going to come along with an open processor agnostic model yeah. that says we understand that you know this industry is talking to thousands of merchants face to face every day Mer- these small merchants are terrified of Amazon they all want to sell online right what is that solution right now i mean really mm-hmm. you know i mean i guess maybe shopkeep is pretty good you know um but you know every the all the ones who have good software for this stuff it's like they also do, are processor exclusive to their own company that's a problem right it, you know which i mean i i understand that sure. model of course sure, great of opportunity course. for them but at the same time i think there's also a larger opportunity which is let's make the software that every all the isos can use so well you, you know. know it's like it's the whole open source thing, right? Right. I mean everything's going open source. Well it doesn't have to be open source, just has to be processor
0: agnostic. At processor agnostic. You but know what but I mean? to me those two sometimes I mean I well open the
2: open source is you can come get all of our code for free. Right, okay. The open, yeah. you know, processor agnostic is we have our software which we own, nobody else can get it and we charge ten dollars a mid or twenty dollars a mid right, right. you know per month. But any processor you can put them on Tesis or Elevon or First yeah. Data or whatever. Sure, sure. So now you get all these ISOs saying, oh, yeah, we want to resell that. And so there's a lot of software like that, but there's nothing that really stands out to me mm-hmm. that's great, omni channel, um, you know, great with like, you know, it's got like the point of sale covered, it's got the online store covered, you know what I mean? All the mm-hmm. bases covered. Yeah. So, so interesting stuff.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So awesome. that's my take.
2: Thanks, Patty. Uh huh. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit InstantQuoteTool.com today or email support at InstantQuoteTool.com to learn more. Hey everybody, James Shepard here for questions from the field. So we just finished up um, a mini-series, uh, Patty, last three weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, it's on value selling. I'd really encourage you to do that. And I actually wanted to do one kind of follow-up episode. It's a totally different topic, but it really ties in well with kind of what we were talking about. Okay. And that is creating a sense of urgency. Mm. Creating a sense of urgency. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is another really big one. Uh, agents really struggle with this. Sure. Yeah, you know, they want to close the deal today, but they can't, right? Right. So why is it that people don't buy now? This is the question I wanted to answer today. You know, it's like... Why does a merchant not say yes right now? Why, doesn't, why don't people buy now? And there's four things that I found in my experience talking to thousands of agents and hundreds of ISOs. There are four urgency killers. Okay, I call these urgency killers. So four of these urgency killers. Number one is they can't decide today. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is they actually can't. Now, this is very rare, all right? It, it actually is not nearly as common as you might think, and I'll talk about that in a second. But they can't. They have a business partner that has to sign the paperwork, right? Mm-hmm. That's an example. Mm-hmm. They can't. Uh, they're leaving on vacation right now. You know, whatever it is, they can't, okay? Very rare. Um, number two, they don't like you. Yeah, that's a problem. And you know what's funny, Patty? This is probably one of the most common urgency killers. That would not surprise me in the least. No. Yeah. And I mean, because people do business with people they
0: feel comfortable with. Exactly. And, right. you know,
2: most salespeople hate to admit this. Um, I talked to an agent recently that, you know, such a great story of this. He actually found another agent, a competing agent in his own market who's totally different than him. This guy's very more aggressive, you know, just a hard closer. This other guy's like the relationship builder. Uh-huh. They have lunch once a week, and they swap prospects. Oh, interesting. He'll say, you know what, um, hey, I've got this guy. I know I'm not going to sell this guy. I didn't connect well with him at all. Uh-huh. Uh, you want to go try him out? Sure, you know what, I've got this one that's on the fence. I'm never going to get him off the fence. Why don't you go try to close this one? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And they just swap prospects Interesting. when they don't connect well, and they have the self-awareness to realize people don't like them. Right. And they just swap, and then the other person goes and closes it because li- they like them. You know? mm-hmm. So that just goes to show sometimes people don't like you, and that's why they don't move Unfortunately, forward. Unfortunately, it's true. Right? Um, now, the next two are really interesting. The next two, the first one is they don't trust you. Mm-hmm. They don't trust you. Um, if people don't trust you, they're not going to buy from you. Right. 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 And then number four is they don't understand. They don't understand. So this is where they don't have enough information. So let me talk about this and give you more of a concrete example. I'm sure many of you, all of you, I'm sure, Patty, uh, you've been at the store and you were asked to donate a dollar to whatever. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, think about this for a second. When you are there in line, this is an urgency decision, right? I mean, this is like you're going to do it now or you're not going to do it. Mm Right? Right? So they say... Hey, uh, Patty, uh, would you like to add, you know, donate a dollar to the Children's Memorial Hospital today? Mm-hmm. Now it's a dollar, right? And you know, you may not really know that much about the charity they're talking about, but generally you might just say, "Sure, why not?" Right? Fifty uh, percent of the time, right? Yeah, right. I'd say I'm probably about the same. Right. Now, if they say ten dollars. Uh, then I think a little bit harder. Right? And you're probably going to ask some questions. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. What do you, what, now, what is it again? What did you say that this was? And right? what do they do? What do they do? Where is this money going to go? How um, much of the money actually goes to them? <laughs> right. Um, if they said $100, wow, Ooh. now I really need to think about it. Right I, right. I need more information, and I need to think about it. Sure, sure. If they say $1,000, I say, you know, I can't. No. Right? My point behind this is that the urgency killers are all multiplied by risk. Mm-hmm. Okay? The more risk with the decision, the more you're multiplying the urgency killers. Uh-huh. The reason this goes well with what we've been talking about is we've been talking about value selling. And if you're not careful, you can really make value selling into this mega decision that's very risky for the merchants. Thus, there's lots of urgency killers, right? Sure. So conversely, if you can find ways to reduce that risk and make it seem like not quite as big of a decision, not as big of a risk, then that's going to cut down on these urgency killers. So how do you do that? So a couple ways you can do it. Um, One way we talked about last week is with trials. Mm -hmm. Right? So we say, hey, you know what we're going to do is we're going to do this. Uh, We're going to let you try it out for 30 days. You know, no hard feelings, month-to-month agreement. Okay, right, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um. Another thing that you can do is with guarantees. Guarantees help to, to cut down on risk. Written guarantees. Mm-hmm. So you could give them a certificate that's you know plain English certificate. For instance, a big risk is well, I'm still shopping around, James. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the best deal or not. I'm looking around. Okay. Well, let me ask you this: If we take money out of it, right? All things being equal, if everybody was charging the same, you'd want to go with me. Am I right? Well, sure, James. I like you. I like the value you're providing. Sure, I'd go with you. Okay. Uh So I'm going to give you a written certificate here that basically says any offer you get in writing from any of our competitors, we will immediately match it. Uh Uh-huh. Keep shopping to your heart's content. If you find a better deal, I don't think you will. But right. if you find a better deal, send it to me. I'll
0: immediately match it. It's the Best Buy model, right? I know when I yes. went to buy a new computer recently, they're like, sure. "Let me check and see what the best." Uh, you know, we'll match anybody. We'll match Amazon. I think is what right. they told right. me. Right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. sure.
2: So they want people to know that they're going to take the risk down in this big purchasing decision. Sure. Right. Sure. So when you go through these, now all of a sudden, you know, somebody's saying, "Well, they can't decide today." Well. Maybe they could try it out. I'll give you a really good example of this, Patty. One of my favorites is partners. Partners are just the worst a lot of times as far as when you're making sales. Oh yeah. Well, I'd love to you know, I'd love to sign up, James, but I really need to talk to my partner about this decision. And he's away for now. Right. Yeah. yeah. So here's what I say. I say, you know what, first of all, you gotta use buffer statements. First of all, I would never wanna push you into a decision you're not comfortable with. But let me, let me just throw out an idea, and you tell me if you think this makes sense. You know, Obviously, you and your business partner are going to want to have the best information possible when you do make this long-term decision. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. of course. So here's my thought. I'm sure you've had you know free trials before in the past, so right. why don't we do a trial, let's work together for a month, at the end of a month, we're going to get your statement, we're going to get the reports from your POS system, whatever it is, and I'm going to come back and let's go ahead now and let's schedule that meeting for a month from now mm-hmm. with me and you and your business partner, then we can all sit down together and have all of the relevant information, you'll use us for a month, right. and then at that point you can make the best long-term decision. Does that sound fair? Yeah. So... These are, you know, urgency killers are the reasons people don't buy now. But, again, just like in the store, the example, if I go in and they said, you know, would you like to donate $100 today to the Children's Memorial Hospital? I might say, oh, wait, what is it again? I might be, and they said, well, okay, what about $10? Now they're coming down from mm-hmm, $100. Mm-hmm now I kind of feel bad that I'm not going to donate the 10. I mean, it's only $10. I mean, uh, you know, now they said, well, how about a dollar? Oh, of course. okay for that. I'll do. Of it. course. Sure. Right. So you can see as the risk comes down, so do the urgency killers. All of a sudden uh-huh. I can't say, well, I can't donate a dollar or well, you know, I don't like you. Well, whether I like them or not, I'm willing to donate to the children's memorial hospital. I mean, right. Whether I trust them or not. I mean, my worst case scenario is I'm going to lose a dollar. You know, like as the risk comes down, them liking you, them trusting you, them not understanding, all of those things kind of start to melt away a little bit. Sure. Right? So you can approach these, and it's important, number one, to just understand that urgency killers exist. Mm -hmm. Try to understand which urgency killer is killing the urgency right now. Right, right. And either address the urgency killer directly by helping them to understand, Mm -hmm. by being more likable, by Mm -hmm. sharing information and gaining trust, and or by just lowering the risk so that those factors don't matter quite as much. That sounds like a great plan, James. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody so much for tuning in. I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.